Luke chapter 6, verse 46 through 49. These are God's words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, hearers, and doers of his holy and errant and infallible word. You may be seated. Amen. Again, I want to wish you a happy new year. And uh, again, want to express, as I mentioned earlier, how excited I am to embark uh, and jump into this new year. And uh, all that God has awaiting for us. Uh, seems like these days uh, with the pandemic and COVID and all that, we're, we're typically just at a point now where we're just ready to get past the past year, right? It's so it's just like 20, yeah, let's just get past that. 21, then it's like 21, turn the page on that one too. You know, 22 is similar. We know we, we, we were all like, yeah, 22, and then still kind of like, yeah, turn the page on that one too. And so 23, here we come. Here we come. So happy new year again. But as we step into a new year, um, by the grace of God, I, I want to take this sermon um, kind of as a standalone before we jump into a new sermon series. And I just want to take this standalone sermon to kind of share a few words of pastoral wisdom with you. You know, each new year typically is an opportunity to start new habits, set new targets, achieve new goals. New year, new you, right? However, if we are honest, most of these new years, new year, new use start out good, but by January we look and we sound a little bit like LaMelo Ball. Anybody know LaMelo Ball? There you go. I got one in the room. Got one in the room. LaMelo Ball is an NBA player. They interviewed him, I think it was last year after a really, really good game, right on the, right on the, um, right on the cusp of the new year. He act, the, act, the new year had actually been brought in, and the game, uh, the game he did really, really good, and, um, and they interviewed him. They said, hey, man, LaMelo, man, just, you really had a great game, man. It's, uh, you know, you're just doing everything on the court, and LaMelo said, yeah, man, you know, new year, new me. Same me, though, same me, same me. And that's pretty much how most of us feel by, by March, right? You know, new year, new me, well, eh. Same me by, by March. But hopefully, you are going to be moving and setting a pace and a, and a, and a direction that is giving some things that maybe you set out to do last year. Here's another opportunity for you to do them this year. But that's not the biggest concern for me, for you. For me, what's most important in establishing your goals and setting your resolutions is not are you setting any, but rather, what deep-seated convictions are you using to shape them? Because too often, we are setting the goals and ambitions of our lives through the convictions and ideas of the world. 
Instead of asking ourselves, how can I look more like and depend more on Jesus this year? We are oftentimes, too often, asking ourselves, how can I look more like my favorite celebrity or look more like the wealthy businessman or businesswoman that I know or look more like my rich friend on social media that seems to be having so much fun with their lives? And so write goals for this year and, for that matter, for the next decade and even for today, the next 24 hours. Start with right convictions. So I want to start your year by grounding all of your goals in right convictions. Because every resolution of the heart, every resolution of my heart needs to begin with this resolution, this resolution. Resolve to seek to treat the Lord truly like the Lord by treating his words truly like his words. Resolve. Seek to treat the Lord like the Lord by treating his words like his words. Every resolution needs to begin with that. And that is the call of Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. So let's unpack it a little by asking two questions this morning. Number one, what is Jesus telling us to do? And number two, why does it matter whether we listen to him or not? Those are the two questions. What is Jesus telling us to do, and why does it matter whether we listen to him or not? First, what is Jesus telling us to do? Luke 6 and 46, it says again, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Well, what is Jesus actually telling us to do? In this text we pick, that we picked this morning, it is actually at the conclusion of a very power-packed sermon that Jesus has preached. And what is this sermon about? Well, with the arrival of Jesus into the world comes the arrival of what is known as the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. So Jesus preaches this sermon to declare to us how we are to live in this kingdom. That's what's happening in Luke chapter 6. Many of you have probably heard of the Sermon on the Mount, but the sermon found in the Gospel of Matthew that contains most of Jesus' most popular teachings about prayer and about the blessed life and about worrying and about needs, it's actually a different sermon than the sermon that we're reading right now in Luke chapter 6, or at least many people believe it to be. The sermon in Luke is very similar, but it's actually known as the Sermon on the Plain. So you have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and then you have the Sermon on the Plain, which looks a whole lot like it, but is slightly different. And there's reasons why the uh, theologians believe, many theologians believe that this is two different sermons. One reason is because according to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, the Sermon on the Mount is delivered as Jesus goes up to a mountain and he sits down. But according to Luke chapter 6, verse 17, the Sermon on the Plain is delivered as Jesus is actually coming down from a mountain and standing on a level place. The Sermon on the Plain does not uh, contain a lot of the extended teaching that we hear in the Sermon on the Mount. For example, it does not spend a whole lot of time focusing on the extended teaching of the law. And the Sermon on the Plain includes a few woes along, along with its bless, blessings. So you hear blessed are, blessed are, blessed are in Matthew chapter 5, but you don't hear much about the woe. Well, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6 introduces some woes. And it also appears that the audience in Matthew 
came from a different place to hear Jesus than the audience in Luke. And you can see that when you read through the text. And so the theologian concludes that the Luke sermon could very well be the, uh, a summary of the Matthew sermon, but there are clues there that point to the fact that these are, this, these are two different sermons that Jesus is preaching. Nevertheless, the sermon has a ton to say about how we are to live in this new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. First, the Sermon on the Plain shows us that this new life completely changes what it means to be blessed. Verse 20 through 22 of chapter 6 shows us that those who are poor and hungry and weeping and despised for the Lord are actually the ones who have the kingdom they're the ones who will be satisfied. They're the ones who will be laughing again. They're the ones who will leap for joy with great reward in heaven. But on the flip side, verses 24 through 26 reveal that those that are rich and satisfied and always, and always uh, laughing and joyous because of their rejection of Christ will eventually be hungry, mourning, and facing the wrath of God. And so that's very different from being citizens of this world, but that's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. Another thing that the Sermon on the Plain shows us, that this new life in this new kingdom handles relationships completely differently. This new life in this new kingdom, verses 27 through 36, show us that there is a higher love and a higher call, I mean a higher call rather, and a higher level of love and mercy on display. Not just treating the people kind who treat us kind. Not just loving the people who love us. Not just even giving and lending to people that we expect to receive something from in return. Instead, the Sermon on the Plain shows us that Christ is calling us to something higher. He says throughout those verses things like this, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Pray for those who abuse you. Bless those who curse you. Give to everyone who begs from you. Don't demand back the goods taken from you. Treat others as you desire to be treated and not necessarily how you actually are being treated. The vindictiveness in our culture where every person we disagree with is an enemy to be destroyed, a voice to be canceled, a liberal or conservative to be owned, that may be the way of the culture, and that may be the way of the world that we reside in, but it is not the way of the kingdom that we are citizens of. Tim Keller once said this. He said that Christians worship, worship a man dying for his enemies. And I'll take that a step further and say that it is because of that truth that I don't believe we worship Christ effectively when we are dedicating so much of our energy trying to own or cancel our enemies. It is inconsistent with the one who saved his enemies by laying down his life for his enemies. You see, the, not only is that inconsistent, but also even the merit-based attitude in our culture that tells us only the people that give us something in return deserve something from us. That may be the way of the culture. That may be the way of the world. But in this sermon, this sermon on the plain, we read that that is not the way of the kingdom in which we are citizens of. And we cannot take these words to us 
as optional words. We must resolve to treat God's words like they were meant for us. This is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. You also see in this sermon that Jesus shows us what this new life in this new kingdom deals, or, or, or rather, in this new life, in this new kingdom, we are to deal far more with our own sin than the sin of others. Luke chapter 6, verse 41, it says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that this attitude of the culture that concentrates so much harder on everybody else's sin, everybody else's wrongdoing, everybody else's brokenness, this, this, this attitude that is at work in everyone else's heart, or the sin that, looking at the sin that's at work in everyone else's heart, versus the sin so very much at work in our own hearts, may be the way of the culture in the world that we reside in but it is not the way of the kingdom that we are citizens of. You see, when you deal accurately with your own sin, Jesus is saying you'll have the maturity, the love, the grace, and the compassion to help your brother and your sister deal with their sin. This, too, is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. And this is what Jesus is telling us. All of this is packed into this Sermon on the Plain. And even more of this is packed in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so as you can see, all of this is very much against the grain of the world and against the grain of the culture. And so if we are to set New Year ambitions and New Year resolutions according to this sermon or this sermon that Jesus is preaching, it will look extremely different from the ambitions and resolutions that the world and the culture around us is setting and encouraging us to set. The world tells us to get payback for all the evil done to us, to be swift in cutting off those that offend you. However, Jesus is calling us away from retribution and calling us to more patience and more love and more mercy. The culture tells us that we are weak if we extend grace to those who despise us and mistreat us. However, however Jesus is telling us that you look like the one you worship most when you are extending grace to the undeserving. The current age tells us that we aren't blessed unless we are rich and satisfied and popular. However, Jesus is telling us that we can have all of that and still be in danger of God's wrath. And we can also have none of that and still be under the rainfall of God's blessing. Because blessing and judgment is made up of far more than substance in what we possess. The world may be telling us to build our lives off of one thing, but Jesus is telling us to build our lives on something entirely different. That's what he is telling us. Now, why does it matter whether we listen to him or not? Why does it matter who we listen to when we are building our lives, setting our New Year's resolutions, establishing our own life philosophy? Why does it matter? After all, as long as we follow our hearts and believe, that, believe our good goals, believe rather in our good goals, that's all that should matter, right? Not necessarily. Wrong. I want to highlight three reasons why that is, in fact, wrong. 
The first reason is because it matters, who we listen to matters because of who Jesus is. Whether we listen to what the world is telling us or whether we listen to what Jesus is telling us matters because of who Jesus is. Again, verse 46, it says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus, at the conclusion of this sermon, where we hear his words, all of the words that he preaches in this sermon, at the conclusion where we are now in chapter 6, verse 46, he challenges all his listeners with this question that sounds almost like it's coming from a place of bewilderment and astonishment. Why do you call me Lord, but don't do what I command? Now, there are a few ways that we can view this term Lord in the ancient language. Lord meant one with authority, and that definition extended to masters and owners and heads of the house, and that definition extended to high-ranking officials, even noblemen. The term even could be used in a polite sort of way, a sort of pleasantry type of address, kind of like our modern-day use of the term sir. But it is clearly evident that Jesus has more in mind here when he uses the term. And we see that he has more in mind in Matthew chapter 7, that sermon on the mount. Because in that sermon, chapter 7, verse 21, he says, remember, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here is Jesus making the claim that as Lord, he holds the very authority of heaven and will determine those who can enter and those who cannot. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these great and mighty works in your name? And I will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There is more than pleasantries and polite addresses in the word Lord for Jesus. There is more than just an honorable sir in the word Lord for Jesus. His use of the term Lord is loaded with divine significance for himself. But he is also making the claim that as the Lord, he speaks as the Son of God, my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is not using the term to refer to himself as a nobleman or a high-ranking authority member. He's not using the term for you to think of him as a respectable man worthy of a sir. He is using the term to refer to the fact that he was before all things and outside of him, nothing exists. That's what Jesus means when he says, Lord. So why would you address me as Lord while ignoring my teachings? Why would you address me as Lord, but build your foundational understanding on relationships and marriage and parenting and friendship, using the advice of those who do not know me and honor me as Lord? Why would you use their advice as foundation? I'm not saying there's nothing to learn from people who don't know Jesus. I'm saying why would you use their advice as the foundation by which you build everything on when you call me Lord? 
Why would you address me as Lord but build your foundational understanding of what it means to be successful using the advice of those who do not know me and honor me as Lord? I'm not saying you can't learn anything from those who do not honor Jesus as Lord, but why would you build your foundation on their words instead of mine? Why would you address me as Lord but chase the life that those who do not honor me um, call the good life instead of the life that I've called you to? You see, if he is truly Lord, we don't get the luxury of picking and choosing the commands that fit our preferences. Picking and choosing the commands that fit our agenda. Picking and choosing the commands that fit our narrative. We don't get to build our goals and our pursuits and our lives on his words when it's convenient for us and then on other words when it's not. Jesus is forcing our hand here, basically saying, if I am Lord of your life, then why are you trifling with my words? Why are you in this kind of semi-respectful, kind of cute, polite, pleasantry sort of way addressing me as more of a sir than the God who has laid claim to you? Obey my words, keep my words, and build your life upon them. That's what it means to truly call me Lord, Lord. You know, the great author and scholar C.S. Lewis once said of Jesus' claim of Lord that he says this in quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, speaking of Jesus. He continues, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He continues, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And then he continues with this, and he says, Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God, end quote. You can almost hear these words from Lewis in the perplexity that Jesus is showing in this verse, can't you? It's like Jesus is saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but then treat me like a liar when I tell you how you will actually experience the blessed life versus the woeful life? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but then treat me like a lunatic when I tell you that there is truly goodness and peace and joy in loving and praying for your enemies. You know how we do that, right? When Jesus says, pray for your enemies, and we're like, well, I'm not doing that. When he says, love your enemies, well, I'm not doing that. Okay, well, I mean, but Jesus said it. So is he Lord or is he a liar? Is he Lord or a lunatic? Let me share with you a powerful illustration that I came across to capture this point. If you got a pen or, or a sheet of paper real quick, whip it out and, and write on that sheet of paper or write on your, your, your notes, uh, use your note app on your phone, write two words there. One, no. 
No. And then on the other side, right, or draw a line straight down the middle of that page, and on the other side of that line, write Lord. No on one side, Lord on the other. You see, these two words cannot stand side by side. The preacher that shared this illustration once shared. shared. He said, one or the other has to be crossed out. Say, for example, if there is any area of your life where you say no to Jesus, you choose no, then you must do what? Cross out the word Lord. He's not Lord of that area. Do you understand? But if you call him Lord in that area, then you must cross out no and say, yes, Lord, because you are Lord, you have reign over this area in my life. But if you have an area that you say, well, no, Lord, no, Lord, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Then you have to cross out Lord because you've said that he is not Lord in this area. I am. You see, if he is Lord, we don't get the privilege to pick and choose how we will obey him. But if we truly believe Jesus is not only all-powerful, but he is also all-good and all-loving, then we shouldn't have to worry about picking and choosing how we obey him. That shouldn't be a concern. Why? Because we believe that he knows everything, that he is good, and that he is powerful. So whatever he says, I'll do. Whatever he says, I'll follow, unless I don't believe that. Do you understand? Most of our disobedience is struggles with our doubt before it is actual just willful disobedience. Do you understand? What we believe about Jesus instructs how we operate and how we follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you call him Lord as pleasantry, out of politeness, or do you declare him Lord because he holds all authority in heaven and on earth? If, that, if the latter is true, then in 2023, resolve to treat his words like they are true and let every other resolution be built upon that foundation. Why does it matter that we listen to him? It matters because he is the Lord of everything. So let's resolve to treat him as such. Now, real quickly, let me turn your attention to two more ways, two more reasons, rather, why this matters. It matters because of what happens when we do when we treat his words like, like they mean something, when we treat the Lord's words like the word of the Lord. Verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well, well built. Why does it matter whether we listen to him? It matters because when we listen, our lives and our eternity are made that much more sure and that much more sound. Now pay close attention to what it means to give attention to his words. Verse 47 again, it says, everyone who comes to me, hears my words and does them. Then he says, I will show you what that is like. They come to me, they seek me, they hear me. In other words, they listen to me, and they do what I say do. They obey. So they seek, they listen, and they obey. This is what it means to move from merely acknowledging Jesus as Lord and giving a polite sir type of acknowledgement to Jesus to actually following Jesus as Lord. 
Does my life reflect a seeking after him for direction, a following after him that is shaping my goals today and 10 years from now, a pursuit that leaves me saying year after year, Lord, I want to be more like you, conform my will to your will, and continue to form me in such a way where I delight in you in all that you delight in, and I despise all that you despise, even if that is not my heart today. Make it so, Lord. Does my life reflect listening to him in such a way that it moves me more and more away from the doctrines of the culture that tell me joy is found in how much I can accumulate or peace is found in how many people I can conquer that disagree with me or pleasure is found in whatever I choose and will and whatever I consume and whatever I lust upon or whatever substance I overconsume? Does my life reflect the listening to him that moves me more and more towards the, word, the words of the psalmist that says that his, his word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path? Does it move me more and more towards the beautiful pastures that the Lord has chosen for me in his will and away from the trappings of my own will? Does my, does my life reflect a cry like the psalmist in Psalm 119, verses 10 through 11, where it says, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And finally, it is not enough to acknowledge that we are seeking and that we are even listening. True following means that as he is speaking, we are actually obeying. Jesus' brother, the Apostle James, has something to say about this following, being connected with doing. James said, do what? Be doers of the word, not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He says, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Is my life a life in which I am seeking after, after the Lord, listening to the Lord, and acting on his words like they are truly the word of the Lord? This is what it means to follow. And in that following, there is stability. He says in verse 48 that he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. It's been said that the soil in Palestine is often a kind of hard pan soil, meaning that instead of putting in the work and labor required to dig all the way down to the good bedrock foundation where the house will be able to stand against the floods and the storms and, the, and stand the test of time, it is very tempting to dig shallow and find ground that feels hard enough to hold the house and then say, well, that's good enough. This is hard ground. We've dug far enough. And see, the path of acknowledging Jesus can be easy enough. Just acknowledging him. Just declaring him Lord while actively ignoring him. That's building just below the topsoil. That's building right there at the hard pan where it actually feels hard, but it's not sound offering our few religious platitudes on our social media accounts, singing a few good songs on Sunday. That's building just below the topsoil. But there is no safety there, family. There's no stability there. 
Because when the storms of life come beating down on the structure of your home of faith, it will not be able to stand if you're just building it on loose soil. However, the one who is committed to following Jesus, not just by acknowledging, uh, but by seeking, listening, and obeying, has a sure foundation for the times when storms and floods come blowing against the house and family. They will come blowing against the house. You know, Candy and I have, have, have seen our share of tragedy, tragedy outside of our home, tragedy in our home, tragedy connected with us. We've seen it through the last 20 years. But nothing humbles you in all of your planning, in all of your resolution setting. Nothing humbles you like sudden tragedy to remind you that you are not in control. We've lost folks, saints of God, that we, would, that, that we thought we would grow old with. Even now, I watch my wife routinely suffer in her body. We had plans for a life without her suffering. And now our plans have been rerouted and altered around her suffering. And we've had to reorient our entire lives around that. But when these waves have beaten against our home, the reason that we have not been taken under and had our faith blown over is because by his grace, I believe our foundation is well below the top soil and even below the hard pan. And it is somewhere deep that doesn't just simply acknowledge Christ as Lord, but lives in such a way where he being Lord is the only way we're going to make it. We've staked everything on him. His words aren't suggestions to us. They're bread for our starving souls. His words aren't ideas that we can just flippantly decide that we're going to take or reject. They are life-giving to us. How about you? Do you speak with Peter when he says, where will we go, Lord? We have nowhere else to go, for you have the words of eternal life. You see, the more rooted you are in simply saying, Lord, whatever you say, I'm with it. I'm going. Wherever, wherever you say, whatever you say, I'm going. Whatever you say, do, I'm doing that. The more rooted you are in that posture, the more sure your foundation will be when the inevitable storms and floods wash up on your doorstep. And this is why it matters that we treat the Lord's words like the word of the Lord. Verse 49 gives us the last reason. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. I believe that Jesus has two things in mind here. One, the instability of this life when we don't obey him, but also the instability of the next life when we don't obey him. You know, brothers and sisters, man, it can be so appealing, our plans, right? Our ways our words, our desires, our will, they can be so convincing. So much education in us, so much knowledge in us, so much information that we have access to, 
it's almost like we kind of know what we're talking about. And we tend to think that we know what we're talking about. And it can be so convincing and so appealing to us. And we can pick up this word and we can read through it. And we can say, come on, man. Who actually is really doing that? Loving enemies? Who's doing that? How are you going to get anywhere doing that? Not chasing wealth? Where is that going to get me? But here's what I'm reminded of whenever the arrogance of my heart wants to rise up and take the place of the counsel of God. He is God. I am not. He is God. And I am not. Proverbs 14 and 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, so convincing, so appealing, just seems like this is the way we're supposed to go. But the Proverbs writer continues and he says, But its end is the way to death. What happens to our life in this life when we do not seek, listen, and obey God and obey him? Treat his words, treat the words of the Lord like the words of the Lord. What happens? Well, the storm comes, the flood comes, and the house inevitably falls. Life has the potential to come crumbling down in all sorts of ways. Our faith can be shattered. Our safety can be uprooted. We invite unnecessary trouble and hardship into our lives. We invite unnecessary trouble into our homes, into the fabric of our parenting into the fabric of our marriages into the fabric of our relationships when we believe that we know and God doesn't we invite so much chaos but we also invite eternal ruin when we say that I know that I trust in myself and not in the words of the Lord that says that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and that he lived a perfect life on my behalf and that he died on the cross and that in his death, um, all of the sin, all of the sin burden that we carried was placed upon his back and placed, placed on his back and on his shoulders. And he rose from the grave, victorious with all power in his hand to declare that not only was he loving enough to die for us, but he was powerful enough to save us. When we say, oh, I don't need all that, I don't need saving, and we cast the words aside of the Lord, then we put at risk not only this life, but we put at risk the next life. And when the storms and the floods, otherwise known as the wrath of God, that comes for the sins of the world, in a similar way that we see in Genesis with the floods of Noah, and we've rejected those words and we've built our houses on the topsoil or even on the hard pan and we have no foundation, then the house comes blowing down, saints. Brothers and sisters, the house comes blowing down. And so not only am I trusting his words with this life, I'm trusting his, his words with the next. I trust his words because he gave everything for me. I can trust that he's thinking about my best interest because he's already gave himself. And I can trust that he has whatever, he, whatever I need to be carried through this life because he rose from the grave for me. And so he's not only loving enough, but he's powerful enough 
to trust. And so I trust him. You know, write goals and resolutions for this year, for the next decade, and for the next hour. Start with seeking to treat the Lord truly like the Lord by treating his words truly like his words. In fact, when the goals and resolutions that we set end up rooted, end up uprooted because of the uncertainty of life, when our plans are firmly planted in the master's hands, we can still rest in confidence that we will be okay. Why? Because he loved us enough to die and he was powerful enough to raise from the grave. And so even when everything is uprooted and shifts on you, you still can have confidence that God has your hand. This last quote I'll share with you, I read last night as we were, um, as we were um, reflecting on New Year's. And this one, uh, one sister, dear sister um, of the Lord, wrote this quote, shared this quote. She said, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, going into the next year basically, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. You can make all the plans you want to make, saints. You can make all the resolutions you want to make. But there is no resolution more important there is no plan more important than you saying, going into this new year, Lord, I place my hand in your hand. Lead me wherever you desire, and by your spirit and by your grace, I will follow. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you and we give you all the praise, glory, and honor for your